Well, first, the pandemic was blamed for throwing supply chains into disarray and sending prices higher for everything from cauliflower to cars, fueling inflation. Now there's the war in Ukraine and avian bird flu and labour shortages. The list of reasons given for high prices goes on and on. And inflation finally is starting to ease. But weirdly, prices don't seem to be going down, at least in the experience of the people I talk to. Skeptics say many companies selling goods and services are using unusual disruptions as a cover for keeping prices high. And Bloomberg Markets managing editor and co-host of the podcast Odd Lots, Tracy Alloway, has coined a term for it, excuseflation. Her reporting for Bloomberg suggests that one-off disruptions can give companies cover for high prices and high profits. Tracy Alloway joins me now. Hi, Tracy. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Nice to talk to you. When I was at school, um, prices going up was explained as something to do with supply and demand. But what is missing in that equation, in your view? <laughs> I was going to make a sarcastic remark about, uh, you know, how long ago you were at school. But um, no, you are, you are hey, we're, absolutely We've only right. just met, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I can't resist. Um you, you are absolutely correct. So the traditional interpretation of inflation, according to you know most of the economics that has been taught for at least the past few decades, is this idea of supply and demand. So if you have a mismatch in capacity and demand, then prices tend to go up. However, What's interesting about our current economic period is we have seen all these new and interesting things begin to happen. So we had a global pandemic. We had lots of supply disruptions. The entire global economy basically got whacked from this one extreme period in human history. And now we're seeing a lot of economists, well, not a lot, but a few economists start to look at maybe different interpretations of the way inflation works. And one of the more interesting ones in my mind is this idea of excuseflation. So the idea that when you have all these one-off events that are popping up in headlines, and you just outlined a bunch of them really well, it gives companies an excuse to raise prices. And that makes total sense from their perspective. You know, their input costs might be going up. Why not push some of that onto consumers? But I think the big difference is when it happens on an industry-wide scale, it becomes very difficult to self-limit. So normally, if one company decides, I'm going to start hiking my prices, you would expect customers to start looking for cheaper alternatives. But if there's a supply disruption or some one-off event that is hitting all the companies within a specific space, so I don't know, think of a company that makes bread or mayonnaise or whatever. If they're all experiencing the same disruption, they can all raise their prices at the exact same time. And it becomes very difficult for consumers to find those cheaper alternatives. How does excuseflation differ from greedflation? This is a key point, and I think a lot of people will hear the term excuseflation and think it's just a cute way of saying greedflation, but really it's something more subtle and more nuanced. I don't think companies got greedier suddenly in the post-pandemic mm-hmm. era and decided now is a really good time to start you know, jacking up my profits. 
I think what happened is they saw this opportunity. They saw all the headlines that said, you know, shipping costs are going up. It's harder to find workers for factories. The cost of inputs like basic grains or oil or gas are going up. So I have a perfectly valid reason to raise my price and pass some of that cost on to my customers. But the big difference, again, is this idea that everyone can do it at once. So you basically have de facto monopoly pricing power for some of these companies because there just aren't a lot of alternatives for people to turn to. If every producer of mayonnaise or bread or whatever is hiking their prices all at once, it's going to be very impossible for customers to go somewhere else. And that is one of the reasons why excusation, the examples of it that I've seen, tends to focus on consumer goods. So really basic necessities for people. I think that's where we've seen the strongest pricing power from some of these companies. What can we learn from a business called Wingstop? <laughs> uh, well, they make very delicious chicken wings. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, they have been a sort of poster child for some of this excuseflation action. And I should say here, excuseflation is not the only term for it. I think um, part of the struggle around this idea has been finding the right terminology, actually. So people default to greedflation. I don't think that's exactly right for the reasons I outlined. Mm. I've seen other people use things like profit-led inflation. There's an economist at UBS who uses that one a lot. But there's also a strategist at a place called Corbu, and he calls it price over volume. So the idea that companies can raise their prices, maybe sacrifice some volume, and protect their profit mat margins in that way. And for him, uh, he has a few favorite examples of this dynamic, and one of them is Wingstop. So we saw an almighty run-up in the price of chicken wings here in the U.S. Uh, I think in 2021, it was over 100% over a 12-month period. And that's when you saw Wingstop really start to push on price. So they're able to say, well, you know, we can't control this. There's avian flu, there's disruption at the factories, all this stuff going on. We have to raise our prices. But then if you look at their actual results, they've been phenomenal. The profit margins are up. I think it's stock. The last time I checked was up something like 250%. Mm. So there is the sense here that companies are perhaps raising their prices more than these pure one-off disruptions might justify. And again, that's totally rational from their perspective. If you're running a business, why not take advantage of pricing power when you can and use that to increase your profit margin? Yeah, you and I were talking off here about flights between New Zealand and the US. We see that in airlines, right? Uh, airlines are turning over pretty big profits at the moment, and it's not because they're selling a lot of seats. In fact, capacity is limited um, and that's driven prices up. So it's kind of another example of what you talk about, limited supply and high prices. Yeah, I think that's right. And the key now is going to be, you know, we are starting to see on the margins more discussion of this particular dynamic, whether you call it profit-led inflation, seller's inflation, 
which is the preferred term uh, from Isabella Weber. Mm. She's an economist who's done a lot of research on this topic, excuselation, whatever you call it, the more it gets talked about, I think the more it lands on consumers' radars and the more they start to think, well, hold on a second, are these valid price increases or not? And I think the challenge for a lot of companies is if we keep seeing a lot of these pandemic-related disruptions or some of the disruptions stemming from um, Russia and Ukraine, if those start to fade into the background, then people's patience is going to start to wear thin. They're going to think, hold on, you know, the economy is normalizing. Why does the price of my chicken wings still, why is it still more, you know, than it was before the pandemic? And at the same time, you're going to see a lot of companies that want to hold on to the pricing power that they've developed over the past couple of years. Uh, Samuel Rines over at Corbu, who I already mentioned, he's now talking about whether or not companies will be able to hold on to the price over volume strategy and basically use it as a new baseline for their profit margins. So there's a chance here that because of the past two or three years of disruptions, companies can increase their margins for the foreseeable future if they're able to sort of establish this as the new baseline. Again, it remains to be seen, and I suspect as some of these one-off events of the past two or three years begin to fade from our collective memories, there might be more consumer pushback. I'm talking to Tracy Alloway. She's the co-host of the podcast Odd Lots and managing editor at Bloomberg Markets. I have so many questions, Tracy. Um, and most of them come down to why that traditional supply and demand model isn't working, because that assumes a sort of a perfect market where if the price gets too high, people stop buying things. Or if a company refuses to drop its prices, another company comes in and offers something at a lower price. Why isn't that stuff happening? Why aren't people stopping buying chicken wings wings and teaching the company a lesson? Why isn't another chicken wing company coming in and offering a similar product for a lesser price? Why isn't that stuff kicking in, which should a free market enthusiast would tell you should naturally correct? (laughs) Well, who can resist the tantalizing taste of chicken wings? Well, that's Um, it, right? We're all addicted to to spending. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's part of it. Look, there are a few things going on. So, First of all, um, from a traditional supply demand perspective, you know, I would add that excuseflation doesn't entirely replace the discourse of normal economics and the focus on imbalances between supply and demand. It's something that augments it. And I think one of the frustrations with economics over the past few years and this idea that a lot of policymakers, a lot of central bankers kind of missed the boat on inflation I think part of the issue is they tend to look at it from a purely theoretical Mm. perspective. They kind of think that, you know, what they're seeing in the economy right now is different than what you would expect to see from a pure um, textbook um, narrative. Whereas a lot of the people who are focused on what companies are doing, what people are doing, um, I kind of think both approaches are are valid. You can have the theory, but you need to augment it with what people and companies are actually doing. And I don't really see any reason why you should discount what companies themselves are telling you. You know, if Pepsi says we are pushing price, 
and we are sacrificing sales volume but raising our prices because we can I think economists should pay attention to that. I don't think it's the only thing they should pay attention to, but certainly it should be one factor. And the same with Wingstop. We had the Wingstop CEO talk about their strategy was basically raising prices until they reach a point where consumers really begin to push back. Mm. So far, at least the last time I checked, they hadn't reached that point <laughs> just yet. And again, going back to traditional economics, Unemployment is still extremely low, uh, at least in places like the U.S., and it is clear that consumers still have a lot of purchasing power despite the run-up in inflation that we've seen. And so as long as the consumer can take it, and again, they don't have a lot of options for cheaper alternatives if everyone is raising their prices all at once, then companies don't have an incentive to lower them either. Raising prices until demand drops away. Now, that reminds me of central bank policy. And you will probably know that New Zealand became the first country in the world to set formal targets for how much prices should be allowed to rise each year. We're seeing a similar thing with um, with the, the price of money, basically what, what we call the, um, the official cash rate in New Zealand. They've been raising it and raising it and raising it and waiting for it to take effect but are we seeing around the world that it's taking longer to have an effect than we might have expected? That's kind of a tough one, because I think going into this year, certainly in the U.S., there was a consensus expectation that inflation was going to be a difficult for the Fed to stamp out mm. without impacting economic growth. So basically starting a recession of some sort, uh, increasing unemployment so that people would finally stop spending all their money on chicken wings or what have you. However, in the past week or so, we have seen a very good inflation print for the latest available month for June, came in lower than expected. It seems like prices are starting to dissipate somewhat. But again, I think we are kind of in this weird moment where we are waiting to see the reaction from the price makers, which are companies. Like, let's see what how the companies respond to this. If they find that they can maybe stop increasing their prices, but maintain the prices that they've built up over the past couple of years, well, then inflation is going to slow, but you're still at a higher level than you were pre-pandemic. But it might be that we end up with something like that. You know, inflation starts to slow partially because the comparatives of ultra high inflation from the past year or so begin to fall away, but you still have higher prices than we had pre-pandemic. That would seem to be like a reasonable, but not not necessarily desirable outcome from the perspective of, you know, someone who, who just wants to have a reasonable meal at a uh, chicken wing restaurant. <laughs> Um, and as inflation keeps going up, or as prices remain high, people start coming up with ideas like price controls. Maybe the government should step in and, and put some rules around just exactly how high prices can go. What is wrong with that idea in your view? Well, this is one of those hot button topics. As soon as you start talking about price targets, some people, you know, absolutely lose their minds and think that you are undermining the very basis 
of capitalism. But I think there are some interesting ideas here and we have seen, again, some changes in the way people are thinking about this. So for instance, in Europe, uh, I think the ECB has been talking a lot about this idea and Europe, of course, has been affected by multiple one-off events. Uh, now the pandemic plus um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and if you look at the research that someone like Isabella Weber has done, she's an economist out of uh, the University of Amherst, Michigan. She's been writing a lot about the seller's inflation idea. Mm. And her point is you cannot rely on normal market forces to sort out these distortions in prices in abnormal times. And in fact, if you look back at history, for instance, the end of World War II um, or you know, even uh, during World War II, there were price targets because everyone recognized there's this unusual thing going on. Maybe we shouldn't allow corporations to ratchet up prices as high as they can just because they have an excuse to do so. And I think for something, well, I should say Isabella Weber has also done some very interesting work on sources of inflation and things that kind of cascade through the economy. So for instance, she'll point to, well, when the price of natural gas goes up, that tends to be something that in itself causes a wave of price increases because of course, anyone who's making something is probably using energy to do so. You know, they have to keep the lights yeah. and the heating on in their offices. So her point is for really sensitive, systemically important sources of inflation, maybe you could limit the market price. You know, it's not like consumers are going to you know, opt to not have any heating at all this winter and just turn off the taps. Mm. They have to get it from somewhere. And if the companies, the energy suppliers have de facto monopoly pricing power because all these things are happening in the world and they can say, well, you know, what are we going to do? Russia invaded Ukraine. There's no gas. We have to raise our prices. Maybe it makes sense for something like that to try to limit the amount of price increase that they can actually do. And that would in and of itself also have the effect of dampening inflation elsewhere since it would maybe limit mm. uh, input costs for a wide variety of companies. In the meantime, what can we do? What can we do? Uh, I guess try to be as price conscious as you can. If you must have the chicken wings, make an educated choice about where you're eating them. I think the other thing that is happening, again, in the aftermath of the pandemic and some of the very extreme uh, shutdown measures that we saw around the world, I think a lot of people just want to get out and they're willing to stomach higher prices in exchange for the experience of going to a restaurant after maybe not having been able to do so for months or even years since 2020. Mm. And I think that is also one of the reasons why people have been a willing to stomach some of these price increases recently. But again, as the pandemic kind of recedes from view, as a lot of these one-off disruptions are uh, con consigned to the dustbin of, of our collective memories, I guess, I think there's a question about whether or not people are going to keep putting up with some of these higher prices. Out of interest, can exceusflation actually drive real inflation? 
Well, I again, I think there's a tendency from economists to sort of dismiss individual actions and to look at the system mm. as a whole. And you know that that might make some sense for a policymaker, but I wouldn't be so quick to dismiss what the companies themselves are telling you. If a major soft drink company is saying that we are going to raise prices, if the owner of a bunch of single family home, homes that it rents out is saying we are raising our rental prices for whatever reason, I would listen to what they're saying and try to incorporate some of that into expectations of inflation. I'm not saying it's the be all and end all. And of course, companies have their own way of exaggerating um, you know, their forecasts and their strategies and what they're doing. But I don't think we should be that dismissive. And the past couple of years have afforded us a lot of new examples of these interesting one-off disruptions. And I think what's really remarkable now is how some of those one-off disruptions are changing our thinking. You know, we're in the early innings of this, but they are beginning to change some of our thinking around how inflation actually works. How hard is it for you as a journalist, by the way, to actually see inside a company and work out where these price rises are coming from, whether it's driven by supply chain issues or rising supply costs or greed? You know, can we actually see that? I think it's really difficult. And in some respects, myself as a journalist, I am in the same seat as a customer who is, is looking at, you know, um, a label on a product in the grocery store trying to figure out, like, why does this cost this much? And looking at the ingredients. I will tell you, I, I did do a couple, <laughs> I hesitate to call them investigative reports, mm. but I, I did do some in-depth um, research on the price of mayonnaise over the past couple years. Yes. And I think that's a really interesting one um, because mayonnaise was kind of impacted by not one, but multiple pandemics. Mm. So you had the COVID-19 pandemic that made, you know, a lot of shipping costs, energy costs, um, labor costs go up. But you also had African swine fever in China, which, believe it or not, impacted um, demand for pigs. And it turns out that one of the things that pigs like to eat is soybeans. And nowadays, I think the primary in ingredient in mayonnaise is actually soy oil. Oh. And so you had these one-off disruptions that impacted the price of mayonnaise. And I was tracking this, you know, sort of in real time. I was looking at pricing on, on platforms like Amazon. And also you can look at U.S. inflation indices and they, they kind of break down um, in, into mayonnaise or at least mayonnaise and other oils and spreads. And so you could see the prices going up. It is hard to disaggregate the individual components. So I can overlay a price chart of mayonnaise and look at soybeans and maybe egg prices, yeah. things like that. And I can see they're roughly moving in the same direction. But the factor that I can't really capture is the profit margin um, that mm. the company is making on mayonnaise because a company like Kraft, you know, they make a lot of different products. I think... Um, Let's see. Unilever has a New Zealand unit called, is it Best Foods? Is that right? uh, Best, Best Foods something? Mayo. Yes, yes. 
Yes, yes. And, you know, it's the same issue there. You can see Unilever's New Zealand profits may maybe going up on the whole, but you're going to have a hard time breaking that down into individual grocery items. But I have tried. That's what I can say. What a great chat. Uh, thank you so much for the work you do in this area, Tracy. The podcast is called Odd Lots. Tracy Alloway is Managing Editor for Bloomberg Markets. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jesse. That was fun.